I'm Ian Campbell from Palliative Care Australia. Welcome to Thursdays at 3, our new video and podcast series featuring conversations with people living and working at the end of life. Today we chat to the 2022 Nurse Practitioner of the Year, no less, Peter Jenkin. Peter, welcome. Thanks for your time. You're still getting some mileage out of that title? Uh, absolutely. Not that, <laughs> not that I'm trying to. Um, I'm a fairly humble person and was quite blown away by receiving the award, but uh, it's a, it gives you a voice, it gives you yeah. an ability to push your barrow just a little bit more. Good, good. And we're going to give you an opportunity to do just that today as well. Peter, your nursing career and your commitment to palliative care starts well before last year's award from the Australian College of Nurse Practitioners. For 11 years and only up until recently, you're a palliative care nurse practitioner for Rest Haven Aged Care in South Australia. You've also worked for SA Health and Flinders University, and you've just moved to Canberra to take up a position with Calvary Healthcare as a palliative care nurse practitioner working in the community, but also at the ACT's Hospice Clare Holland House. How are you settling into Canberra? It's fantastic. I love Canberra. It's been two months so far. Um, I'm slowly being able to find my way around without a, uh, I was going to say street directory, that makes me feel very old. Some Google Maps, uh, my reliance on that is, is decreasing. It's, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic service to work for too. And just to clarify, I'm, I'm working in a team, it's, it's called the PEACE team, which is an interesting acronym, Palliative Aged Care. Um, essentially, there's a, a group of us nurse practitioner-led that provide support and consulta- consultative services to the, I think there's 29 residential aged care homes across the ACT. Uh, That's fantastic. And I think you've, you've perhaps answered my first question. Um, back in 2016, you wrote a blog for Care Search where you thought that you were perhaps the only specialist palliative care nurse practitioner employed by an aged care provider in Australia. Clearly, that's that's changed. <laughs> a little bit. So just to clarify, when I first started 10, 11 years ago with Resthaven, it was a, a Commonwealth-funded project looking at how nurse practitioners worked in, well, could work in, in aged care. And mm-hmm. there were many projects around the country and not all of them were palliative care. Um, that was only two years, though. Uh, we demonstrated that there were improvements in quality of life and reduction in hospital admissions for people at the end of life for living in, based on what we were doing. And so Resthaven, bless them, the board decided to keep me on and then I've been there for, you know, it was just over 10 years when I left. For about the first five years, as far as I knew, I went searching high and low. I was the only specialist employed by an aged care provider. So there were some working in the public service, um, but certainly the only one. And there are still only a few. And I think a lot of that is to do with funding. There's no additional funding provided for um, to, to, to aged care providers uh, to, to provide that sort of service. Hence the importance of services like the one that I'm working in at the moment to, to provide that inreach. Otherwise, they just wouldn't have access to it. I guess one thing significant about that is it's a postcode lottery. It depends on where in Australia you are. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, sometimes even which end of a city you live, in, in terms of uh, metropolitan areas, what access you have to specialist support for in, if you're in aged care. Um, which is completely different, slightly, to to living at home in the community. Mm-hmm. Lots to unpack there, Peter, and we'll do our best to plot our way through it. But let's start at the start in a way. That, that term nurse practitioner will be new to many people in the community. What is a nurse practitioner? Okay. Um, 
the simplest version, I guess, is we are all, we are registered nurses with um, the most significant experience, expertise, and authority to diagnose and treat people with a variety of, of health conditions. Um, we, we've completed extensive training and, and master's degree uh, education study at, at university level. And I guess we're the most senior and often the, the term independent is used, but I guess more autonomous um, in, in health, uh, clinical nurses in the, in the healthcare system. Um, and and nurse, part of what we are is also in really actively involved in research and, and education and clinical leadership. It's a term, nurse practitioner is, an in, is a protected term. You're, you're endorsed as a registered nurse and then as a nurse practitioner. And so you, can, you can't hold yourself out to be one unless you've fulfilled very strict criteria. Mm-hmm. And your passion for palliative care, Peter, where did that come from? How did that start? Oh, that's always <laughs> an interesting story. I, um, I started my, uh, my nursing career actually coming out of a short stint as an ambulance officer, and I ended up working in emergency departments for a, a number of years. I just, I was moved to, in, in a big hospital, you get moved around a bit. I, I moved to oncology and after a few years, just kind of wondered what the heck we were doing to some of these people whose quality of life seemed to be secondary to treatment and trying to extend their life just for the sake of it. So, um, and at the same time as that, there just happened to be a talk about uh, palliative care and, and end of life uh, by Palliative Care South Australia that I went along to and it just clicked, it just clicked. I was also getting sick of shift work. <laughs> So um, I got a job with the District Nursing Service in South Australia as a, a palliative care nurse, and it, it kind of grew from there. Peter, palliative care is a, a multidisciplinary team approach, but just give us a sense of, of your role in, in that team, the, the day in the life of, of Peter Jenkins, today perhaps. Give us a sense of, of your role okay. in that palliative care team. Yeah. I just, I will. I just want one thing you said at the start about it being a team. Palliative care is everyone's business. You know, the, the people like me in specialist services, we're the, the pointy bit at the top of to, to where we're, we're there to add value to what everyone else is already providing when it gets a bit complicated. Um, I can't really give you a, a, an, a, an average day, really. Um, we schedule ahead of time. Uh, we, so we get referrals from residential aged care homes. That could be via a GP, via sometimes a family uh, or, or most commonly staff. And it can be for all sorts of reasons. Um, it could be for assistance with advanced care planning where things are complicated or where there is conflict or, or um, um, worry around that what the goals of care are, uh, uh, complex symptom management, and sometimes also when the wheels are falling off and it's it's an acute event or end of life and everyone's sort of scrabbling to to get to that point where the person's going to be able to maintain their their care in the aged care home as well and that's something that's that this particular service has has developed a program which has now been rolled out around the country and they're well known for it's called palliative care needs rounds mm-hmm. um and they they're really almost the missing link in it a lot of a lot of places aged care homes have great advanced care planning they do end of life care really well but the difficulty is at the in the middle is picking up those people because people have chronic diseases that are just slowly changing over time it's often a surprise when suddenly they're right at the end of life so these needs rounds are a monthly meeting in an aged care home where it's like a triage meeting essentially you know we, we ask staff to to bring 
eight to ten residents, uh, not literally, but but, but bring bring them uh, their, their details to a meeting. Um, yeah. And it's the work they've done beforehand. They've identified people who don't have a plan, who have symptoms that aren't well managed, that there's, as I said, conflicts around the goals of care, or maybe they're actually admitted for end-of-life care. And our job is to help them triage what needs to be hap to happen. Is there a case conference with the GP and the family and the resident and everyone to work out and make sure everyone's on the same page? It could be a referral to us as a specialist service. Um, it, it could be a number of things. Equally important in that meeting, though, is we're teaching, we're doing education that's mm -hmm. contextual around whatever the, the residents' needs are and, and what the staff are talking about. So it's not only about triaging, but it's about building capacity so that next time they may not need to. And it's it's also congratulating and, and helping them understand that they're doing a fantastic job. And sometimes they just need a bit of encouragement. It's not us coming in, so we have to rescue things all the time. Peter, it sounds like in, in the in the model in the team that you've just described there, it sounds like there's a there's a baseline, there's a foundation of, of knowledge that understands palliative care and understands the benefit of, of early palliative care and and the the benefit that comes with I guess adding quality to people's lives and, and as you say, the role that everyone has to, to play in that. That's not always the case though, that people don't necessarily, doctors, nurses, specialists don't necessarily have that foundation that understanding of what palliative care is? No. The first thing I always ask, uh, particularly residents, patients, uh, clients, whatever you like to call them, and their families when I meet them is, what do you understand palliative care is? Because you can see often when you come into somebody's room, there's just this tenseness in the, in, in, in the, in the air. And it's because the majority of people think that palliative care is the bad end of life, the last days, weeks, hours of life. And so hang on, what the heck has he come in to see me about? And when you describe that it's about caring for someone with any condition where you can't cure it and where the goals of care are about living as well as possible for however long that might be, you can just see people relax and more willing to engage as well. Um, and, you know, realistically, that could be right from the start of a diagnosis of a serious illness. It generally isn't, though. And again, that's where those needs rounds and that picking up that, that middle stream is the most important because that's often where these conversations really begin. And if they're done well, months down the track in an aged care home when a nurse is ringing up a family member saying, look, your father's really not well, it's not should we be sending him to hospital, it's do you remember when we had that conversation and we talked about what we can do at this stage? And I've already got the GP or the nurse practitioner coming in. Um, we, we've already prescribed some medicines because you, we thought your father might not be able to swallow. Um, and this is what that's going to keep the person out of an emergency department. And those needs rounds, they did a study when they developed this model and it showed millions of dollars saved from the health um, budget simply by reducing hospital admissions. Quality of life was better. Quality of dying was better. It just works. What, and this is perhaps a, a big question, Peter, but what, what is it that stops this model being everywhere and all families having access to this quality of life that you point to? Wow, where to start? Um, <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think you mentioned it before. We've, we've just talked about it, just this perception that palliative care is, is only about the end of life. And so um, a lot of health practitioners, and I don't want to single them out particularly, but there are many GPs still who, who 
when asked about palliative care, will say something like, oh, no, we're not there yet. Um, similarly, there are many that I work with now who are extraordinary and are engaging very early on and doing a lot of this work that I'm talking about by themselves and, and initiating it. Um, the system generally, I mean, I don't want to just focus on funding but funding. Um, the aged care uh, system, the providers are not funded well. Or this, um, you know, we're, I think in some sense we're actually an ageist um, society because we can talk as much as we like about how important the care is of our, of our most vulnerable people. But as soon as there's talk about increasing funding and where that's going to come from, like, you know, essentially the taxation system, yeah. no, 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 I wouldn't want to pay any more of my tax to, towards that. Um, and it is a relatively small but growing proportion of people who are needing this sort of care. And in fact, it's growing significantly at the moment. Um, but the people who are paying taxes generally aren't the ones, unless it's their parents. And equally, we all want quality of life as, as we move towards the end of our life, but we don't want to plan for it. We don't want to talk about it. We're a death denying society. We're a funny lot, aren't we? It's always going to happen to someone else, except it's not. Yeah. It's always. <laughs> <laughs> Death taxes, as they say. I guess, I guess something. Another barrier is, if I can just jump on my soapbox, you know, um, there is a difficulty accessing timely and appropriate um, clinical support in residential aged care for all sorts of reasons. And I, I was called before the Royal Commission to talk about some of this. You know, the 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 split between federal federally funded aged care and then the state and territory funded health services, and how often there's this perception that it's double dipping and it just the interface still is not right. It's getting better, but it's 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 not fantastic. And and similarly with GPs, finding someone a GP who is available, willing, keen, competent, confident to provide that care. We know there aren't enough GPs, and this year there was only half of the number of um, registrar positions taken up in general practice in the training program. So that's it's only going to get worse. So there are nurse practitioners like myself. We're not many doctors. We don't want to be. We're highly experienced nurses who bring with us experience not only of some of those extended um, skills which merge into medicine like prescribing, but we're nurses and we've got the, the art and the science of nursing um, to bring with us as well. And we know that that works. There have been numerous studies. There was a, an MBS review about three years ago now that presented um, so much evidence on the, the benefits. And it wasn't about us as nurse practitioners. It was about the benefits to the consumer of, of being able to fund this. And there is movement. There is movement. There is a 10-year uh, plan that's being looked at and consulted around at the moment that the, the federal government is looking at. Um, submissions, I think, have just closed on the last round of, of, of feedback. But that's 10 years. And I know they're looking in stages of some very small wins quickly, but there's a lot of things that could be happening more quick. Indeed, the PCA's submission to the Nurse Practitioner 10-Year Plan is on the PCA website for, for yes. people to, to look at. As your point, Peter, we, we find ourselves at a time of, of health reform. New government in town keen to get some runs on the board around health reform, and nurse practitioners do seem to be part of the, the solution. You touched on the MBS before, the Medical Benefits Scheme. What changes would you like to see? What changes do you hope to see that would empower nurse practitioners deliver the sort of palliative care you talk of? It's difficult because the MBS is only there for people working in private practice. So people working like myself at the moment working in a, in a publicly funded service, it actually doesn't have that much difference. Mm -hmm. 
increasing the access for patients to get subsidised care with item numbers from nurse practitioners, though, would improve the ability for aged care providers, for instance, to employ or contract nurse practitioners outside of the public health service. So there would be more of them willing to go and work in that area to provide the services. So at the moment, there's only four item numbers for nurse practitioners. And it's it's nowhere near enough money for a, a, for, for somebody to even break even to, to, to do that work. So it, there's little incentive for a nurse practitioner to go and work in that, in that, in that field. There are some who are doing it, but the, the few. All eyes are on the on the May budget. We're all all hoping to see some progress there. Yeah. Uh, Peter, the other reform that is starting to, to take effect: uh, registered nurses twenty four seven in in aged care. What difference will that make? Do you think? And and what needs to happen to make sure that that measure does deliver better care? Look, numbers of nurses are important. Similarly, quality of nurses and the the support of nurses. Um, in terms of 24-7, it's incredibly important. I'll give you an example. If, if you have a, an elderly person um, who's needing medications that they can't swallow anymore, so need medications by injection, um, that requires a registered nurse to have someone else to check the medication when it's drawn up. And so mm -hmm. if you don't have a registered nurse in the home overnight, say, and the person is needing additional medications to treat their symptoms, whether that be pain or nausea or breathlessness or agitation or anything, there's no one to give it. Or they have to call someone in, and sometimes that can take hours depending on yeah. where the registered nurse is. And so it's, it's unfair on older people, and it really it's a human right to get the care that you need at the, at the end of your life. And um, it's, it's unfortunately, despite the fact it's 2023, it's still not happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. Let's be a bit more philosophical for a moment and I get back and I guess get back to why you do what you do. Death is a unique phase of life to work in. You do it every day. Tell us of some of the moments you've had along the way that have that have left a mark that keep you showing up for work every day. Hmm. I think that's the key. It's making a difference. And I, I, it sounds a bit twee in some sense, doesn't it? But to be able to get up in the morning and know that you're hopefully going to make a difference in somebody else's life in a positive way. And to start with, that's reframing what a win is. You know, palliative care is not about keeping people alive. It's, it's about helping them have a good death and also supporting their family um, and the loved ones around them at the same time. I guess even more broadly for me, it's, it's helping registered nurses and other staff in aged care ensure that they are able to provide the best care and often it's it's seeing them being able to deliver that in the future in in later on or in the future in a way that um they are proud of and and able to is important um there's one that sticks it stuck in my mind from very early in my career just about the importance of making sure that the the patient is central in this and that we understand what their wishes are even though it might go against perhaps our values or what we've been trained about. I, back when I was working in the community, uh, there was a, a woman in perhaps early 30s who had um, end-stage breast cancer and was at home um, and was going to die at home. She had a, a Buddhist faith and, and a profound um, wish that at the time she 
passed away, that she died, that she was going to be as clear of mind as possible. And despite the fact that she had incredible levels of pain for, for all, a lot of reasons, um, she had in, in, very explicit instructions that she did not want any opioid medicines or anything like that to, to cloud her mind. And so me coming in in my sort of, you know, mid-20s to provide this care as, as a young registered nurse was very disconcerting because I could see that this person, this woman was suffering and I knew that there were things that could be done, but she didn't want them. And watching her die over, over a number of days, visiting her at home, w made a profound um, uh, impact on, on my professional career. Um, it's impacted on me in a way that, that has just really pushed the primacy of the individual and making sure that we don't bring healthcare um, to somebody in a context of what we think should be done. I mean, similarly, there are there are some cultural things. You know, there are some some ethnic or, or cultural groups, and I'm stereotyping here, where it's very difficult not to continue trying to feed somebody. Right, sometimes almost until they're about to take their last their, their last breath. Um, and it's easy for us to go, that's ridiculous. They're going to aspirate. They get, you know, all of these negative health outcomes. But if you see it from the cultural context of theirs, mm -hmm. that food is, is incredibly important as a, a cultural, as a celebratory of, of so many different things, that for them, they're just making sure that they've done everything possible yeah. to help that person. And in some sense, it's not actually just about keeping them alive. It's just the cultural mores of, of, mm -hmm. of where they're coming from. Some great examples of person-centred care, which which again goes back to quality of life. At the, mm. what, what's at the heart of palliative care? Mm. Peter, how does this work influence your life outside of work? How does working with death influence your life? It really just helps me enjoy life so much. Um, I... I've done that throughout my career. I've recognised that death could be just around the corner. I've met people who had their whole lives planned out and they get up one day and go to the doctors and get told something that just changes it forever. Um, and so I think you can't help but appreciate that. However, we live our lives and there's lots of stresses and things and it's easy just to get caught up in yourself sometimes. I had an accident at the end of 2021 that um, significantly changed my world, though I, it was a cycling accident. I ended up, I broke my neck and many other parts of me and ended off work for five months and I came that close to being a quadriplegic or potentially dying. So um, I'm not are necessarily a religious person, but I think something or someone was out looking out for me. And that's really made me even more appreciate. That's probably one of the one of the triggers that that's had me land in the ACT here. You know, a, a job, but also I've now got a one-year-old, almost one-year-old granddaughter that uh, uh, is growing up far too quickly not to not to miss out on. Yeah, great, um, great. Just what, one other thing, if you like, uh, just in terms of. Um, in terms of just generally about death and dying. At a Palliative Care Australia conference many years ago, um, th there was a music therapist or, uh, that, that was there and, and speaking, and it, it had a profound effect on a number of us. And over dinner that night, we, um, we sat down and we worked out what our playlists would be of music that we would love to have playing as we approach death, you know, in yep. the, the days and hours of, of life. And, and so we, we still occasionally talk about that. Um, I haven't made them public on Spotify, but uh, I think, I think things, things like music are, are, are so evocative. And similarly, food. Um, 
that when someone can't swallow anymore, we use these, these mouth swabs for the non-clinicians, look like a big fat cotton bud that you can wipe inside somebody's mouth to keep their mouth moist. And I'm always asking families, what is it that mum or dad loves the taste of? Because I would hate for it just to be clinical that it's a mouthwash or water or something like that. You know, why shouldn't it be some diluted, really good whiskey or a, a decent yeah. red wine or, or a cup of tea or whatever it might be, you know? Um, so, so things like that are just as important as the clinical things, that the medications that we bring, because um, dying is not a medical mm. procedure. Some great examples of your work there, Peter. And you, you mentioned previous PCA conferences, and indeed, you don't mind a shameless plug. Um, early bird registrations are now open for the Oceanic Palliative Care Conference, which is coming up this September in Sydney. And registrations are open. It'll be a cracker, absolutely. Mm. Um, Peter, you work in the health system, you work across the aged care system as well. Both health systems have been under enormous stress and, stress and pressure over the last few years. How are you and your colleagues travelling? How, how are people feeling? Uh, I think we're very tired, to be honest. <laughs> um, I've come to a service on the eastern seaboard that uh, has had so much pressure during COVID particularly. Um, numbers of staff were down and there were three core staff who managed to service all of the aged care homes for close to two years by themselves. Um, one nurse practitioner, Julianne, who um, provided telehealth services while two nurses went out. Um, it, just incredible work. I think in, in South Australia, it was different. We didn't have the numbers of residents who were dying, who were seriously ill to start with, but later on we had the lockdowns. Um, and that caused incredible distress amongst older people, their families, but also staff, because we were having to, to restrict family coming in to, to, to visit their loved ones at the end of their life and to hold up an iPad or, or a phone to, mm. to, so that family could see or hear their, their resident taking their last breath is just distressing on so many levels. So yeah. I think there's a lot of moral as well as physical and emotional just um, distress and, and fatigue. Um, this new normal is getting there. It's getting there. Um, yeah. How do you look after yourself in amongst all that? You, you talk about the emotional load that you carry. How do you get rid of that? Are you still able to get back on the bike and burn around Lake Burley Griffin perhaps? <laughs> I hadn't been on bike for, for, well, since the accident essentially until I hit Canberra again and I'm, I'm, I'm commuting most days, um, which is about 10 kilometres. It's a beautiful ride. Probably half of it is around the lake itself and then on the way home, it's fantastic. Um, um, this is to all the health clinicians out there. Don't neglect the, your own self-care. I did quite some years ago now and got completely burnt out. But uh, it's not something to wait for. You know, um, meditation is fantastic um, just to help be mindful, physical exercise, getting enough sleep. Um, they're really easy things just to let slip. Um, when you have a holiday, have a holiday. It's it's sometimes hard not to, to, to have work still in your head, but, you know, there's that idea that the the person out in the in the forest needs to sharpen his own axe um, every so often. Otherwise, you're just going to work harder and harder and harder, and your productivity, your number of trees is going to get less and less. It's the yeah. same in healthcare. You can't help other people unless unless you're able to look after yourself first. And also, I've got a little almost one year daughter, granddaughter, who's uh, keeping me honest. Good to hear. Yeah. yeah, a great point to end on, Peter. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing your your work and your wisdom with us today. And thank you for what you do. Oh, you're most welcome. Thanks very much for having me. Peter Jenkin, palliative care nurse practitioner with 
Calvary Health in Canberra. Whether you've tuned in via Spotify, YouTube or one of our socials, thanks for being part of the Thursdays at 3 conversation. You'll find more information and support on the Palliative Care Australia website. See you next time.